Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. And uh, one of the things that we discussed as, a, as New Day Church uh, earlier this year was kind of the things that we are going for as a church and one of them was that we are going to be, we want to maintain a cultural culture of revival. Yes. Uh, we, as a church, from our found, founding, um, have been a church that uh, focused on revival, revival-oriented. I remember when um, the church actually was founded in the early 80s. I was one of the first people that joined the church. I remember we still have a copy of the original flyer, the brochure, and uh, restoration-oriented was the term that was used, but it was, restoration is another, another term for revival. And the church that the pastor, his name was Ken Norberg, still his name is Ken Norberg, he lives in California now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, the church that he came from in California was actually called the Revival Center. And wow. so, um, re- yeah, and it direct roots with... Uh, a revival that was called the Latter Rain Revival. And if you're a church historian, you would know what that was. <laughs> but most people don't. Dale, you probably have heard of the Latter Rain Revival. <laughs> a major uh, revival that uh, swept through the nation around in the 50s, the 40s, and the 50s. <clears throat> and so um, the church in Sacramento was significantly influenced by the Latter Rain. And in fact, the network of churches that we belong to, Partners in Harvest, where I'm going on Sunday, as well as a number of us next week um, for, their, for the main conference, um, is uh, the direct result of a revival, okay, where God showed up and did things. So we just want to talk about, well, what, what do you mean by revival? When I shared earlier uh, this year about being a church that's focused on revival, I had a number of people come and express, like, concern. These are people that have, are newer to the church and maybe have not been around as long. And one person surprised me, and he uh, actually said that it made him afraid. <laughs> okay, so obviously I'm laughing. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not very nice. Uh, <laughs> The reason I'm laughing is like, I'm like, why would that cause you to be afraid? I'm, I just, it's, to me, is I, I don't have a grid for that. And, but his grid was he had experienced different churches growing up. And when he heard the word revival, he was like, okay, what, do you, what does that mean? Does that mean we, we're going to have people knock people down? You know, is that what we're going for? People falling on the ground? Does that mean... Uh, we're all going to have banners and be waving flags uh, and running around. Does that mean everybody's going to be pulling out tambourines? You know, what, what does revival mean? Uh, and so there's different experiences that in his life, <clears throat> what he saw was actually not healthy or not that any of those things that I just said aren't healthy, but what his experience was were churches uh, so emphasize certain aspects, um, and, and actually his experiences were pretty negative. And so we want to, um, actually this, this teaching is a little bit of a practice, and then I want to write 
something to distribute so that we can clearly have a clear definition of, of what is revival. So this really is an opportunity for me to just talk through some ideas. I only have 30 minutes, and we started late. So let's just see what happens. Um, <laughs> There's grace? Is there flexibility? <clears throat> All right. I was hoping I, I didn't need my glasses. If I stand back, I don't need my glasses. Okay, so from the dictionary, let me just read the dictionary. It says, and a revival means an improvement in the condition or strength of something. How do you want to improve in the condition and strength? Hallelujah. That's a good thing. It means getting better. Um, uh, synonyms are improvement, recovery, uh, a turn for the better, upturn, upswing, resurgence, resurgence. Um, another definition is an instance, an instance or an occurrence of something becoming popular, active, or important again. And so a revival is when something that was important that then got kind of lost gets rediscovered and it becomes important again. Um, uh, other synonyms for that, restoration, rejuvenation, renaissance. And so that's just the definition of the word. Then the uh, definition of it from a Christian uh, dictionary uh, or um, explanation or perspective is that revival or revivalism is increased spiritual interest. That's a really, right there, Underline an increased spiritual interest. There's, a, there's an increase in the level of interest in the things of the Spirit. Uh, or renewal in the life of a church congregation, a society, uh, with a local, national, or global effect. So that's, the, that's a big definition of what a revival is. Within Christian studies, the concept of revival is derived from biblical narratives or stories in the Bible of the national decline and then the restoration during the history of the Israelites. Okay, and uh, how many of how many of how many have read a Bible? <laughs> all right. And so, if you read through, and if you've never done it, I encourage you to read through the Old Testament, especially when when you get to the places of like the Judges and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, Samuel. <clears throat> In those books, um, you'll see a pattern of uh, decay in the society, and then God usually sends an individual or a circumstance that leads to a restoration of the true, biblical truths and, and seeking God's word or seeking God's face and worship, which leads to a transformation of the of the community, of the nation, and often deliverance from actual enemies. All right, and so all through the history, <clears throat> I just copied and pasted from this one um, um, so, so reference on, online, but it listed the chapters of a book on um, revivals throughout Scripture. And each chapter, <clears throat> I'm going to read a ch uh, just the chapter titles, Revival in Egypt. So was there a revival in Egypt when Moses showed up? A little bit? Significant, right? What, what happened? Yeah, they were slaves and they were set free. And did it change Egypt? 
Did it change Israel? Actually, that was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Uh, and so the major, and then it goes revival in the time of the judges. So all the way through, there's different judges that would be raised up, and they would uh, bring the uh, people back into uh, relationship with God and freedom from <clears throat> enemies. Revival under the prophet Samuel, under Asa. Under, so there's a whole list of prophets, and, and many of the books, the prophetic books, are the stories of the revival that happened as a result of the ministry of a particular prophet. Um, so Elijah, Jonah, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra, as well as Nehemiah. So all the way through Scripture, you see this pattern. Um, and in um, the latter, uh, the end of the Old Testament, there's actually a, a, between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence, okay? And if you're not a Bible student, you may not know that, but between the last of the Old Testament prophets and the coming of John the Baptist with the announcement of the birth of Christ and John the Baptist preaching, John was like, everybody was astounded because they thought the age of the prophets was over. They were cessationists. Okay, a cessationist is, is someone who believes that the prophecy and, and the other gifts of the Holy Spirit have ended. Well, the, 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 the Jewish people had not heard a prophet for 400 years. There had been no prophecy in the land. Yeah. And so, guess what? It caused a ruckus. Who's this John the Baptist guy? What happened to John the Baptist? He kind of lost his head over the whole deal, didn't he? <laughs> he literally lost his head. It was good. <laughs> I'm trying to get the young people to laugh. <laughs> Who would like to be the example of losing your head? All right. We're going to cut off your head. You're just joking. <laughs> so they... they they, and, what, and then, of course, that happened to John the Baptist. He was prophesying and bringing a revival. There were thousands of people coming out to be baptized. And then Jesus came, and, and the whole of Jerusalem uh, went after him, it said at one point. And, and, so, and then they, what did they do with Jesus? What did they do to Jesus? They, the religious leaders killed Jesus. And so, uh, so you see that pattern and so from Egypt, I just did a quick calculation to John the Baptist, is around 1,500 years, maybe 2,000 years. And that works out to be about every 150 years, if you averaged it out, 100 to 150 years, there was a revival. There was a revival. And then in the New Testament, it actually speeds up. In, in the book of, uh, in the, right through the New Testament, we see the revival at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit fell on the church, the beginning of the church. And then there was a revival in Samaria, revival in Caesarea, revival in Antioch. And then there was a revival, this has happened in, in, uh, in the European, when Paul went to Europe, Macedonia, and preached the Gospels, and people got saved. And so there were these different, when you read through the book of Acts, because it's small and there's one story right after another, you think they're happening like, uh, like two weeks later. But some of those stories, there are, there are gaps between the stories of years or a decade. The book of Acts actually spans over a 50-year period. 
Okay, and so when you read about Pentecost, and then you're reading, uh, you know, a few chapters later, another couple thousand people get saved, actually about a chapter later, you're thinking it was like the next week, but it, it was actually a number of years later. And, and so, <clears throat> and what, even in the early church, there was these patterns where, wow, something would happen. Paul was in Ephesus, it says in Acts, and, and, uh, and he was working extraordinary or unusual miracles through the hands of Paul to the point, this is an Acts, that um, people would bring him handkerchiefs and he would touch the handkerchief and then they would take that handkerchief to another city, put the handkerchief on a sick person and that person would be healed. That's in the book of Acts. But the fact that it said it was unusual is actually the key word there. Because Paul ministered all over the place and did a lot of great things, didn't he? But at that point, for whatever reason, God chose to, to turn up the volume on the miraculous. And as a result of the revival that happened in Ephesus, all of Asia, and, and he was talking about Asia Minor, so that whole region that we now call Turkey and, and, uh, and northern Syria and, and Lebanon and that whole region of the Middle East, which is actually part of Asia, <clears throat> heard the gospel, the whole, because of a revival that wasn't happening, that then happened, and then at some point, you know, it stopped. I've been to Ephesus. Nobody lives there anymore. It, it eventually became just a, old, a city that got abandoned because of economic downturn. And, so, and now in that country, Turkey, it's one of the least Christian nations in the world. And so the revival happened, and then at some point it ended. <clears throat> okay, so um, let me uh, uh, quote from the book of Ezra. Uh, oh, before that, uh, in Acts... This is uh, one of the early stories after the church was um, just being birthed. <clears throat> actually, uh, Peter and John uh, prayed for a man that was lame, and um, he got uh, healed, and everyone's attention was on Peter and John, and so they preached the gospel. And the conclusion of the message that Peter was preaching says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Okay, repent and return that your sins might be wiped away so that times of refreshing. And the word refreshing can actually be translated revival. It means a recovery of breath. It's like being underwater too long, and then you come out of the water. <gasps> you ever, ever do that? Yeah. Ever hit by a wave, and you're down, and you come up, and it's like, you know, or you're out of breath. <sighs> you had to uh, do something uh, that made you out of breath. You had to run <laughs> to get the remote control. <laughs> Marilee showed up this morning for our meeting, and she'd run a 5K. And she said, she was like, it was no big deal. <laughs> I just ran a 5K? Wow. Uh, <clears throat> okay, sorry for that distraction. So it means recovery of breath or revival. So Peter's sermon 
to the Israelites as a response to seeing the healing was actually, hey, you need to repent and, uh, and, and make a turn, change your lives so that revival can come. And that's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the church. And that's what happened. And then we see both throughout Acts and then throughout all of church history, that same pattern of, you know, revival and then usually a gradual decline to where things just kind of settle down and then actually get kind of stale and even maybe get to a place of corruption and then someone comes along and says, wait a minute, these are the things of God, and there's an experience. And so all through church history, you can see that same pattern. And I, I didn't do it. You can do some research. But, um, you know, in recent history, in the 20th century, it was about every, would you say, 50 years? At most, there was a major revival. 1904, Azusa Street. The revival that has never ended, okay? It's, it's still spreading. That's when, when the resurgence of experiencing speaking in tongues happened. <clears throat> but that is the result of actually um, many people seeking a renewal of the faith. They, they realized that people, uh, before the turn of the century, the late 1800s, there was a lot of debauchery, okay? So the culture had kind of, had in the United States especially, had become very carnal, all right? And, um, and so there were people that were spending, uh, there was a major prayer movement, and so there was an intercessory movement, and many of these people were spending hours, days, or weeks seeking God in prayer. And that led to um, what we call the Pentecostal revival because a, a black, one-eyed preacher... Um, uh, in the uh, out west, started preaching about uh, that he saw this thing called speaking in tongues as evidence of the Holy Spirit, and he went around. Read the history; it's a great history. Uh, preaching that the evidence of the, of having the Holy Spirit is being is being able to speak in tongues. He preached that for years before he actually heard anybody speak in tongues. He just said, "This is what the Bible teaches." So. I'm preaching it, and he was teaching, and, te- and, in some, and all of a sudden people started speaking in tongues. And that's what we call the Azusa Street Revival, and that was the beginning of the Assembly of God Church. Have you ever heard that? As well as many other denominations that looked to Pentecost, Pentecostals. And then in the middle of the 20th century, all the charismatic churches, uh, like the Vineyard Church, and, and there's most charismatic churches are independent churches, <clears throat> Um, uh, whole and and the Catholics were uh, were swept up. Millions and millions of Catholics were swept up into what was called the Charismatic Renewal, that swept through the Catholic Church. <clears throat> and so we see that same pattern going throughout all of church history, just as it was throughout all of the history of Israel. And I say, my little saying is, revival never stops; it just moves. And what I mean by that is that somewhere revival's happening. Right? Uh, Yeah, why not here? And so uh, maybe there's a season where things aren't happening in Cass County or Michigan or the United States. But listen, right right now revival's happening in China. Mm -hmm. More people are getting saved in China now 
They can't even keep track of it. All right? They can't keep count of it. They don't know how to count it because so many people are becoming Christians in Asia and in Africa. All right? And so, wow. In America, maybe we're seeing things go down. And, and in Europe, Western Europe, England, England used to be a Christian nation. They, they still are. Technically, the prime minister um, of England gets his authority from the archbishop of the Church of England. All right? The reason we have separation of church and state in America is because in England, they don't have separation of church and state. If you, if, this is something interesting. If you work for the Church of England, if you're a priest in the Church of England, you know where your paycheck comes from? The government. Serious. If you're an, a, a German in Germany and you're a Lutheran, you know where your paycheck comes from? The government. It's a state church. Okay? And that's why when uh, the, the, uh, 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 the revivalists, let's call them that, what, what were they called? The people that came to America? The pilgrims. The pilgrims. <laughs> <laughs> the Mayflowers. <laughs> ah! I haven't even gotten the Jonathan Edwards yet. <laughs> so they left that because they saw an institutionalized church that had no life in it. And they wanted the freedom to worship God. That was revival. Our nation was born in revival. The motivation for those people to risk their lives, and many of them died, was so that they could have freedom to worship God the way that they felt God was calling them to worship. Because they were living in a community where that had ended. But you know what? At one point in history, England was, was swept with revival. All right? Because it used to be a completely pagan nation. And so that, that's, so what is revival? It's about that restoration, that, that gaining momentum, that something becoming active and popular that has, has fallen into decay, something uh, uh, be, being revived. Okay. Um, and let me just read from the, a prayer of the prophet Ezra. And there's a great pattern here where there's confession and repentance that leads to grace and revival. All right? That's, somebody realizes we're doing something wrong and we've missed it and makes a confession. I, I just read through the history, the biography of Martin Luther. And if you, if you, if you want to read a long book, <laughs> it's worth it. It's really good. Um, but he was a priest in the Catholic Church. How many have heard of Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther from the 1500s. <clears throat> he was a priest in the Catholic Church. He was a German guy from a small town. And he was on fire for God. He wanted, he was just convinced. He was, he was actually from a fairly well-off family. Um, some of the myths about him are accurate. And uh, so he could have gone into business, but he was passionate for God. There's a story about when he got... Uh, I was walking home from somewhere, and there was a storm, and he had an encounter with God. And so from that point on, he had committed his life to, to be a, a faithful Christian. And he, for, for his early life, he was so frail that people were afraid he wasn't able to stand. Okay? If you've seen pictures of him, he's a big, jovial German guy. All right? <laughs> More like me, right? But for most of his life, he was really skinny. You know why? Because he would fast constantly, fasting, and 
confessing sins because he was trying to do everything that the Catholic Church taught was the way to become righteous, which is confession. And so he'd spend hours in confession um, every day right? and then confess that he was sinning by not confessing enough <laughs> and fasting and all that. But then <clears throat> he uh, discovered God's Word and he, and he, and he was... And while he was studying God's Word and reading the actual Bible instead of books about the Bible, he discovered, wow, we're not saved by works but by grace. And then he started teaching that, and it transformed uh, all of Western history, actually, as well as this church and every church that's that's, uh, um, just about every church on the planet, the message of of one poor Lutheran uh, uh, German guy. All right, so... Just like Luther realized, oh, we're doing it wrong, confessed, repented, and, and sought to do it right, that's the pattern. Ezra, same thing. This is from Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. He said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt have grown, have, has grown up to the heavens. So he's recognizing the sin of himself and and the community. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. So he's confessing sin. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder and humiliation, as it is this day. So he's recognizing that they'd come under um, slavery because of their sin. But then it says, And now for a little while... So there was a time period, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant uh, to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. And again, the, the history here is that the king of Persia gave permission for Ezra to take some people back to Jerusalem and, and to rebuild the temple. And so he's, he's praying a confession that led to repentance and grace that re- re- led to a, a physical revival of the city that they were living in, that they were longing for. And so revival always involves this personal transformation or the transformation of communities. When we're a church that seeks after revival, we're looking for personal transformation and community transformation. All right? And then it says, to repair the house of our God. So they physically actually rebuilt the temple in Ezra's day. Uh, but that temple actually was pictured, even in the Old Testament, the people of God. And in the New Testament, that's the primary definition of the temple of God is, is the church, right? And so revival is about a restoration of the house of God and the people of God. And it says to rebuild its ruins and to give us a, a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So it's rebuilding and establishing both a place of worship and then uh, Nehemiah actually rebuilt the walls <clears throat> uh, that's, that uh, protected the city. And so Ezra and Nehemiah happened uh, 
concurrently and they overlapped a little bit. Um, and so God brought revival by restoring the actual physical city and the, and the worship to Yahweh, to, to the Jehovah God uh, and the Israelites. <clears throat> and the walls are boundaries. And so this is what revival is. It's, it's restoring people and communities into right relationship with God. I'm going to quickly get through this because <clears throat> we want to get to some worship. And worship, let me just tell you, what we're going to do in singing some songs after I get done talking is a really important part of revival. Um, in fact, one of the things that I didn't know, uh, I, knew, I knew that Luther had introduced a new form of worship, uh, that same Martin Luther guy, the German. <clears throat> what he did was he took songs that were popular in the bars. He took secular songs that were popular and put Christian lyrics to them. Okay? So when he'd start playing his instrument, everybody knew the tune because that's what they'd hear in the tavern. But then they would sing about Jesus. They'd sing about salvation. And so, and people were drawn to that. But what I didn't know is that the Catholic Church had completely abandoned congregational singing altogether for at least four to five hundred years. All right? Yeah, so the only people that sang in the Catholic Church were the priests and the monks, and they usually did that when no one was in the building because they lived in, the monks lived there, all right? And they did stuff every day. And they would sing songs while they did chores and stuff. They were chanting and, and, and so on. But there was no congregational singing. Uh, and so when people came to church in Luther's day, they would come, <clears throat> they would hear the priest talk for 10 or 15 minutes about some idea. And most of it wasn't from Scripture because uh, pastors did, weren't, weren't allowed to have a Bible. <laughs> Serious. And then they would take communion. But in the Catholic Church at that time, um, only the priests could drink the wine and the people were, were allowed to eat a piece of bread. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's one of the things, another thing that changed under Luther. Uh, but what he introduced was congregational singing. Uh, and boy, has that taken off or what? <laughs> it was only 500 years ago. All right, and now, and the author of the book said uh, he was shocked because he was doing this study of Luther, and he actually went to a funeral of um, uh, a relative who was a Catholic, and he went in, and even in the Catholic funeral, they sang contemporary worship songs in a Catholic church. Okay, the very Catholic church that had excommunicated Luther and sought to kill him for introducing things like uh, communion allowing people to drink wine and communion and, and, and different things and singing in churches. And so <clears throat> singing and worship is a key aspect. And through nearly all revivals, there's been a musical element that's been reintroduced, either a new style of music or new emphasis on music. Most of the hymns that you grow up to uh, uh, is um, linked to... Uh, people who have been transformed by a revival, and they wrote a bunch of hymns. And to us, maybe they're old hymns, but at one day they were the hottest thing off the, you know, the revival press. You know? And now it's, now it's the latest worship. It's Corey Asbury, yeah. right? who lives in Kalamazoo now. Did you know that? 
yeah, <laughs> we've been praying that revivals come. Well, Corey's come. <laughs> so, okay, real quickly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take five more minutes uh, to quickly go through. Edward actually lists, Jonathan Edwards was a minister in the early 1700s in the United States, and he wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of God. And the reason he wrote it was because a revival happened in his ministry. He was a pastor. He was also a, a scholar. He was, he's considered by European educators as the first American scholar. He was the first person that Europe recognized. This guy's actually smart enough to be called a scholar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he founded a university. Uh, but he led the thing called the Great Awakening. And, and there isn't, I don't know of a single denomination that speaks negatively of the, the Great Awakening. All right? Everybody respects the Great Awakening, that that was a genuine move of God because it was back in the 1700s. But back in the 1700s, everybody didn't agree to it. A lot of people were really upset about it. <clears throat> so he wrote this little explanation, and he writes, he gives it nine things that doesn't prove something's a move of God, and then five things that say this is what a real revival looks like. So I'm going to quickly go through the nine things that don't, because Mark wanted me to. <clears throat> All right? Uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to. Uh, yeah, so he said, so these are things that, that don't neither prove nor disprove. If these things happen, it might be a work of God. You can't say it's a work of God just because these things happen, but you cannot say it's not a work of God because these things happen. And, and the reason he lists these nine things is because all of them happened in the Great Awakening. And frankly, all of them happen in all revivals. Um, he says you cannot disprove or prove that something's a work of God simply because unusual or extraordinary things, um, that a work is carried on in a way very unusual or extraordinary, All right, as long as within the limits of Scripture. In other words, if crazy, wacky things are going on, that doesn't mean it's a work of God, but it doesn't mean it's not a work of God. Number two is that a work is not to be judged by any effects on the bodies of people, such as tears, trembling, and that means sh shaking, groans, <laughs> loud outcries, agonies in the body, or the failing of bodily strength. And so Toronto was known for this. People fall over shaken. I fell over and shake, shook and laughed and cried. For hours, I could not get off the ground. Before that, I had, I had not ever experienced that, okay? And actually had taught against the thing called being slain in the spirit, okay? Which is praying for somebody and having him fall over, right? Because sometimes it's fake. Yep. And I'd only seen the fake version until someone prayed for me and I fell over. <laughs> I was like, wow, that really happened. And then I couldn't get up for hours, as hard as I tried. So he says that so the reason he said that was because it happened in his meetings, and you can read the histories of it. All right? So he says that doesn't prove it's a work of God, but it also doesn't prove it isn't a work of God. It just happens. Okay? He says uh, a great deal of noise, or, or if, if because of this, what happens, a whole bunch of people get all excited about it, and a great deal of noise about religion occurs. In other words, it's in the press, books are written about it. That might be a, a work of God, it might not. 
um, that uh, people have great impressions made on their imaginations. Okay, and this is written in Old English. It was written in the 1700s. So when we, now, today, that would be expressed in people writing books about prophetic revelation, all right, or having dreams and visions, great imaginations. Does that mean that's the work of God? It might, but it doesn't prove it is or doesn't prove it isn't. But these things happened in the Great Awakening. Uh, number five was um, that example is a great means of it. In other words, and this, he, this is a whole paragraph. I don't have time to read it, and it's a whole chapter in his book. So some people said, you know, if it was really God, he wouldn't have to do this to all these people, do this being shaking, falling down, weeping, uh, laughing, uh, uh, all this crazy activity. If God wanted people just to be more holy, he would just make them more holy. And, and he actually points out that actually, no, people seeing it happen to other people is a very, very valid way that God moves. All right? And he compared it to like this. Uh, he said, if, if people were out in the field praying for rain and it started to rain, you wouldn't say that it was no longer legitimate for them to have prayed for rain because it was raining. Right? And so if you're praying for a transformation of a community to change, and all of a sudden everybody changes, it just happens to be in a way that you weren't expecting. All right? It doesn't mean that what you're doing wasn't of God. Okay? <clears throat> so, so in other words, uh, if it's happening to a bunch of people, that might mean it's of God, but it might not. It could go either way. Um, uh, it's no sign that it's not a work of the Holy Spirit if many who seem to be subjects of it are guilty of great irregularities of conduct. In other words, they were sinners. Uh, people of disrepute were affected. Uh, when I went to uh, uh, the revival down in Brownsville, so many of the people that were getting baptized were prostitutes. All right? And so uh, pe people changing. So that doesn't disqualify just because God's reaching people that were disreputable, that were known for being sinners. In addition, um, just because there's errors in judgment and some delusions of Satan intermixed with the work, any argument that the work is in general is not of, this, is not of the Spirit of God is not valid. Okay, so he's actually saying that just because some of the teachers get some things wrong in the midst of this greater revival, even to the point of demonic you know, influence, doesn't mean that it's not a work of God in general. Um, if, if some of those who were affected by the revival end up falling into gross error or scandalous practices, TV preachers getting it, having an affair, right? That doesn't disqualify what God's done in the revival. Um, and so, and, and one other thing is that if the people who are promoting it are ministers that uh, have a great deal of pathos and earnestness, in other words, they're preaching passionately. Okay? You know what? You can have a passionate preacher that's preaching error, or you can have a passionate preacher that's preaching truth. So you can't use that as a as a indicator. So that neither proves nor disproves. And, and often, one or more of those things, people will say, oh, you, this is not of God, because uh, what's happening there is 
is, uh, you know, that person was a leader in that revival, sinned. Or, or that's crazy, got everybody shaking and falling down. That looks like something, you know, uh, that you see in a tribal, uh, you know, rituals. Yeah, you see that in tribal rituals, but that doesn't mean it's not of God just because it happens to a lot of people and people fall down. Does this all make sense? Yes. Okay, do you want to hear the five point marks that say these are the things that you really aim for? This is what we mean by seeking revival, is that whatever happens uh, leads to um, the exaltation of the lifting up of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, it turns people's attention upon Jesus. Okay. And that means, hey, this is a genuine work of God. If they're falling down and they're having a vision, and this is what I love about Toronto, as often as possible, uh, and I know John or not, the pastor of the church, he would say, and he'd, if he was here today, he'd say, <clears throat> many, most of them were genuine experiences of encountering God. Some of them were emotional responses because of, they were in a room with a thousand or two thousand people that and they were seeing other people experience something and they just emotionally responded. All right. Some of them were just faking because they wanted attention or they just didn't want to be left out. He John say and some of them it's deliverance. They get a demon. We know that. <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and they would actually have people they out actually I've actually seen them. I've seen John or not realize, praying for someone, they start manifesting, shaking. And I've seen him, just because I'm a friend of his, I've seen him realize this is demonic. And he'll just go, out with the bad, out with the bad, out with the bad, in with the good, in with the good, in with the good. And, and I know what he's doing. And he's actually he's commanding the demon to be bound and cast out, but he's not getting religious about it. Is it out with the bad, out with the bad, out with the bad, you know? And that's deliverance. <clears throat> so all four things would be happening. But if the testimony of the person that had the experience was that they had a more uh, exalted view of the person of Jesus Christ, then that's a legitimate experience. That's, that's what we're going for. Um, and then if it opposes the interests of, of the enemy... Okay, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I have scriptures for all these, but I'm not going to take the time to, to go into it. So it's genuinely a work of God if in the midst of the preaching, the teaching, the worship, the singing, and the, and the falling down or whatever, people uh, are drawn to Jesus and they oppose the influence of Satan. Okay, and so um, they, people sin less or they turn from their sins or they stop taking advantage of uh, the poor, or, or there's an actual change in people's behaviors, and they begin to resist the influences of Satan and sin. Uh, number three is that people are pointed uh, to and directed to a higher regard for Scripture. Okay? And so if this is elevated... And this is presented as you guys need to be in the Word of God. You need to be preaching. Then it's a legitimate work of God. Right? And I can testify after 25 years of going to Toronto, we really honor God's Word. Okay? Some people don't think we do because they only see YouTube videos uh, criticizing. Right? 
but we, we strive to be solidly grounded in Scripture. And this church strives to be solidly grounded in Scripture because we're seeking genuine revival. That's number three. Number four, it elevates truth. Okay, it lifts up the knowledge of truth and it opposes error. Okay, uh, by this we know the Spirit... Um, um, it says, we are of God, he who, hears, he who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so there's a pursuit of truth. Uh, uh, um, and the final one is that it results in love for God and others. Okay, and so that there's a change in people's behavior and that their level of, of passion for God and their passion for people and really passion for the lost. Most revivals and not just in a, in a re- resurgence of religious activity within the churches, but that then directly leads to um, many more people becoming saved. And I'll just let you know, <clears throat> a lot of people don't know this about, they've not done the research, I happen to have done it. Um, that the Toronto, what's called the Toronto Blessing, which was really just, I mean, it happened all over the world almost simultaneously. There was outbreaks, not just in Toronto. Toronto just happened to be uh, an epicenter. It got a lot of press, but it happened in many different places in which people's attention were, were drawn back to God and the things of God. As a result of that, a lot of people say, well, it's not a genuine revival because there wasn't a lot of salvations. Well, they didn't keep count the first 10 years in Toronto because they were so busy <laughs> having nightly meetings. But in Brownsville, which started as a result of Toronto, they had over a million recorded salvations. Okay? We estimate at a minimum of, of, of several hundred thousand in the church in Toronto itself. Because even though most of the people that were coming were already Christian, a lot of them weren't really Christian, and they got saved. They thought they were Christian. And I know many people that got saved in that revival. But then you had out of that um, things like Heidi Baker's ministry, okay, who got transformed in Toronto, Iris Ministries. Heidi, personally, I, was, I saw her, the last time I saw her was like four or five years ago. And she said, she said I'm not trying to boast, but I want to give glory to God. As of last month, I personally have led Heidi Baker one million souls to Jesus. The vast majority of them Muslim, because she goes to Muslim cities. And she said just last week we were in a village, and 8,000 Muslims bowed their knee and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Ah! That's just Heidi. Heidi has a huge ministry. There's, there's uh, well over 5,000 churches under that, and they're all part of our network. And, uh, um, and so they're all getting people saved. And then you have the, the Brownsville thing, and, and then um, um, IHOP, International House of Prayer, and influence that had. Uh, Mike Bickle's ministry, was, uh, that's, uh, the, uh, that's IHOP. I'm trying to think of the other one. Yeah. Uh, and then another one that I didn't realize was connected was the... Um, uh, Gimbal, um, where they have, there's a, oh gosh, it's the most effective evangelistic Alpha, Alpha course. Yeah, the Alpha course 
which was, it's used all over the world, but it really was function, it really worked good in England, and, and it still is working today as the most effective evangelistic tool um, uh, in recent history. And uh, Mickey Gimbel, I think he got his name right, Gumbel, <laughs> Nicky Gumbel, yeah, wrote, his life was transformed in Toronto. And if it wasn't for that move of God, Alpha would not be what it is today. Okay, and so all of the, at least a million, if not millions of people saved through that ministry, all are the result of a bunch of people getting in a room, singing some worship God, uh, worship songs, and saying, "Come, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit." Mark and we we're, uh, yeah, you guys, musicians can come up. Uh, we were reading a book today. <clears throat> the the staff at our New Day, we will take books and read through them and talk about them. And, and one of the responsibilities of a spiritual leader is to get people to do... So the job of a spiritual leader is to do something that is impossible for you to do. Did you hear that? One of the responsibilities to be... To, in order to be a spiritual leader, what you're, what you're called to do is something you actually can't do. Because I can't make Luke be more holy. I, I can't make this guy, Jerry, Geraldo, Geraldo, I can't make him stop, stop uh, getting drunk. God already did that, right? Yeah. God did that. But I, I, can't, I can't make you passionate for Jesus. But that's my job is to make you passionate for Jesus. Right? And so church is really about doing something that we can't do in our own power. We can't accomplish revival. So how do we do it? We confess, right? Like Nehemiah, like Luther, like every other. If there's sin in our life, we confess and repent of it. And, and, and we change. And then we, we seek God's grace and mercy. All right? And that leads to a time of restoration and revival.